Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Hey gang, welcome to a new episode of Blockhead. Have I got a special episode for you today. National Book Award winner Nate Powell is here to talk about his work with the great civil rights leader and congressman John Lewis on March. John Lewis's life story, the story of civil rights in the 50s and 60s, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, told passionately uh, from the perspective of John Lewis. I shouldn't be telling you anything new. If you've never read it, you've got to read it. It puts you right in, uh, right in the center of things in John Lewis's experience. And it is really, it really felt and powerful work. Nate's also the cartoonist author of Save It for Later, which is out now. Uh, his latest book, Save It for Later, which is a series of essays in the era of Trump and post-Trump uh, about promises, parenthood, and the urgency of protest. How do, you, how do we grapple with all of the problems that have arisen in the wake of the election? of Donald Trump in 2016. How is a parent to engage your children, how to tell them and teach them about what is happening in this country, which we all, I think, can agree on is is not entirely pleasant and is has been very, very thorny and difficult. And a lot of things have come to the fore. A lot of ugly issues have come to the fore in the last four or five years. And, uh, and so Save It For Later is really about grappling with that and as a human being not really from left or right perspective it's it's just simply how to deal with it from a moral perspective this perspective that has been instilled in Nate and Nate's work by the example of John Lewis who looked at things you know as as conveyed in March from that perspective from a moral perspective from a humane perspective from the perspective of just a person, you know, a human being who sees wrong and tries to right it. And uh, so Save It For Later is a book that is challenging. It is troubling. It has hope. It is not without hope. But it is also, it's telling, also saying that the, the, the struggle is not an easy one. And I think if you read March, you know that that struggle is ongoing and has never been an easy one far from it. And so lots to talk about here that I can't wait to dig into. And I hope you will stick around for both hours. The first hour, we talk about Save It for Later and the Voting Rights Act, which again, I had hoped that, well, this episode is really a tribute to John Lewis and to Nate Powell uh, and to Andrew Aiden, really, those who worked on the March Trilogy but primarily to Congressman Lewis, who passed away in 2020. His example uh, continues to lead, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act had come to the Senate floor this week, and unfortunately, due to the the intransigence of several senators, uh, went down to defeat. And uh, nevertheless, 
it's a timely discussion because voting rights, as we know, are under attack across the country and the, the, the nature of the ballot and democracy itself has been challenged, has, in, has come under threat. And we're seeing that not only here, but also across the globe in places like Hungary and elsewhere where autocracy has risen. And, uh, and it's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. <laughs> it's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope uh, th- from democracy, uh, from democracy that is, that is decayed, you know, uh, due to neglect or otherwise. And we can't take it for granted. And March makes that clear. Save it for later makes it clear. And what's happening around the globe and now uh, in states across this country, what's happening there is it also makes it clear we can't take it for granted. And so this episode is really a tribute to John Lewis, to his fight, to his work, to the civil rights movement, to Nate Powell, and to the idea of voting rights and the Voting Rights Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which somehow or another will will come back in some form and uh, as a tribute to the great congressman and, and to the work of those who struggled for civil rights and equal access to the ballot box in the past and who continue to struggle for it now. So without further ado then, the great Nate Powell and myself in conversation. Hello, Nate Powell. Welcome to Blockhead. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm uh, as uh, I, I say this all the time to my guests, but I'm really excited to have you here today. It's an honor to have you here, a National Book Award winner, uh, and and a man of great integrity. And uh, I'm just so thrilled and um, excited to have you here to talk about. So many timely things uh, right now. I mean, your work has never been more timely, I think, than it is now. And uh, in particular, um, I've been reading your latest works. I think it's your latest anyway. Save it for later. It is. Uh, and we'll get into that in a moment. Before before we do, I just wanted to, to, to open up by saying today, Chuck Schumer, uh, leader of the Senate Democrats, uh, leader of the Senate, is bringing the Voting Rights Act, uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, to the floor of the Senate for debate and discussion in what appears to be a rather futile effort um, to get voting rights passed. Or have you been following this? And are, are, do you have any feelings or thoughts about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been following it every day, and uh, I have to say, I'm uh, I'm I'm surprised at the degree to which uh, this has been kind of a deflating and disappointing uh, situation in the last, especially the last week. Uh, but in particular, like I feel like this really just underlines the power of the status quo. Uh, on, to an extent across both sides of the aisle, but like when we're talking about democracy uh, versus establishment power, uh, you know, these are, these are really telling times where, uh, you know, even people who pay lip service to John Lewis's life's work, uh, people who love to quote Dr. King on MLK day, um, they know where their line is and their line really is actually doing something to help fulfill the promise of democracy uh, and fulfill full citizenship for black Americans. So, uh, you know, there are moments where I, I, I recognize that I'm 
hardened and cynical enough to expect certain certain disappointments. But yeah, last week, uh, just the the sense of deflation was really tangible. I think uh, amongst you know myself and a lot of people I know, um, and uh, yeah, it's just a hard time to to find some sense of hope and momentum. And mm-hmm. uh, so these are the times where yeah, that that pressure is more important than ever. Yeah, yeah. You know, I uh, I I think you must be referring to uh, uh, Kristen Cinema's um, yes, uh, yeah, uh, speech on the on the in the Senate about um, uh, the filibuster and uh, this idea of um, listening uh, to the other side of the aisle in regard to this issue. And and I have to say, I I, I feel an enormous amount of futility right now in regard to this um and it's 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 interesting in light of the work that you've been doing in light of the work that congressman lewis did uh and and this i think this runs through march and it runs through save it for later and run as well and it's this idea as that you just brought up of keeping the pressure on because as john lewis said this is not one lifetime's work it's it's many lifetimes worth of work it's a constant battle and this is just another indication that the as you noted the the forces aligned against democracy never seem to waver in their in their you know the bulwark they they put up against uh the the desire for equal rights and and equal access to the ballot box um that we've been struggling for as a human as human beings since the enlightenment you know um, and, and it's an ongoing struggle. And I think we tend to forget that and, and, uh, just sort of take it for granted that democracy, at least in the United States is, um, something that's not going to go away. But I think what we're seeing right now, it's, it's very evident that, uh, there are forces aligned against it that, that, uh, have always been there and are resurging, I think today, and, uh, that's very dispiriting. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think a lot of this involves sort of adjusting people's uh, people's internal vision of what autocracy and, and what a dying democracy might actually look like. Because, you know, uh, particularly, yeah, for baby boomers and Generation X, uh, I grew up the tail end of Generation X, uh, there's a certain kind of uh, default sense of stability and the notion of things simply working out uh, uh, that 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 we should know better by this point isn't guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of like democracy in danger and what that actually looks like, uh, it, it doesn't have to be something as dramatic and immediate as our visions of totalitarian rule. Uh, you know, it's it's the kind of thing that's dying by degrees. And mm-hmm. uh, for for a lot of people in America, and this would include myself uh, in many aspects of my life, it w- it wouldn't look that different. And that's the scary part: is that it is so easy to get through your get through your day and get done what needs to be done, and keep your head down. Um, so this is simply just the the time not to take not to take things for granted. Yeah, it, it, you're absolutely right. I think we need to be vigilant and and be aware. I mean. Uh, what we're seeing, as you said, it, it's by degrees and slowly, ever so slowly, you know, before you know it, one morning you wake up 
and you are Putin's Russia or we're talking about Hungary or it, it is really easy. Uh, and I think we're seeing that now. There's a lot to talk about here, both the, the legacy of John Lewis and the, the work you did on March, but also your latest book, Save It for Later. And, and uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, I've read Save It, to La- Save it for Later now um, twice at least, and um, I plan to read it at least a couple more times. It, it is um, what it, it's moving, profoundly moving piece of work. It's also a challenging piece of work. Uh, whether you're left or right, I think, uh, picking up this book and reading it, you're going to be challenged on one thing or another. And there's a variety of different it's um, ideas present within the work uh, that are really, I think, really important ideas. And really, there's an immediacy to this work that that makes it really perfect for the time uh, that we're living through and illuminating about the times we're living through, very illuminating in some some regard. Um, what was it that motivated you to do this book now? Uh, because well, it seems like it started in 2016, maybe. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say generally speaking, like, you know, a lot of stuff has been brewing in my mind, connections uh, were being made, uh, but I was, you know, super busy um, throughout 2016 and 2017 at the drawing table. But by the end of 2017, um, I think I had, a, I had personally arrived at a point in which um, it had become obvious to me that after you know less than a year under this quickly moving, budding authoritarian regime, um, that not only had had a lot of the constant crisis been normalized, but uh, I guess in the context of uh, moving forward with getting some of it down on paper, uh, you know, this notion that, you know, there were like a hundred fires burning all the time and these fires are really worthy of our time and energy and resources. Um, but in always being in this reactive state uh, and always kind of prioritizing and, uh, sort of rationalizing uh, how, to, how best to pick your battles, uh, something that immediately, I think, had fallen to the wayside for most people who were, you know, staying on top of the news uh, and, and in their communities around them was this sort of interpersonal uh, communication as far as like providing space to vent and air the more private and quieter ways in which uh, living under the Trump regime uh, and even before, like recognizing this uh, notable social and political uh, shift occurring throughout the 2010s and this imminent conflict, um, the ways in which that had affected uh, many aspects of our lives. Uh, and as a parent who you know had a kid born at the end of 2011 and, and a second child born in 2015, um, a lot of my worldview was now filtered through my young kids' worldview, how they were processing what was around them, and importantly, what kinds of questions they were asking and how best to respond to that. And I feel, you know, I caught myself kind of shoving a lot of this stuff under the rug, being like, oh, it's not, a, you know, it's not appropriate to be talking, you know, like the, the sort of like personal venting and personal grievance, personal doubts and fears and anxieties. Um, be like, that's, uh, that's not stuff that's really impacting society. That's private me stuff. Uh, however, 
reckoning with a lot of that is like the the very first step as far as being able to like clear enough headspace to recognize how to best use your time, how to best push back, how to best work constructively to build something better. Uh, and so I guess like I, I had started forgetting little details even from 2016 already. Mm-hmm. And I realized I just kind of needed to scribble some stuff down so that I wouldn't forget it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of that was uh, inspired by uh, Sarah Kinzier's essay uh, in November of 2016. Uh, basically, Be Your Own Light in the Age of Trump was the was the was the title or subtitle of it. But one of the recommendations was simply to write down lists of you know these details and memories, but also lines you've drawn for yourself in the sand, lines you won't cross, um, and being mindful of a time in which you may or will be pushed to cross those lines. So yeah, I, I spent you know a few months just kind of uh, writing down a lot of this stuff so I wouldn't forget it. And then by the end of 2017, I realized that this was something that I kind of wanted to put to comics mostly as a form of therapy, but uh, I recognized that my own family's experiences um, weren't necessarily unique uh, and that there was power in that. The fact that what I was feeling and and the recognition that these sort of quieter personal moments uh, and personal processings of uh, our social and political reality was something that a lot of people were struggling with. Um, And you know, so then it was a, the question of what's the scope and scale of how to turn this into a comic and and what's the value of making this comic? I mean, I know what the answer is for me in that regard, in regard to the value of it. And I find it highly, really valuable, very valuable document. But what did you say to yourself? I mean, when you asked yourself that question, what is the there's a moment in the book where you talk about preaching to the choir uh, in different terms in that low hanging fruit. And um uh, and in one sense, the book is going to be speaking to people who had the same kinds of issues with the Trump administration that you and I share. Um, so how did you respond to that? And how did, for example, um, your editors respond to that? I well, think? I'd say, uh, first it involved, uh, taking all those concerns that you just laid out and then one by one kind of confronting them and realizing how many of them were built on assumptions. Mm. Uh, And a lot of that has to do with the assumption of a certain kind of political binary, not only with readership or potential readership, but even the level of the level of concern with living under the Trump regime. Um, And, you know, like I would argue that to a degree, it's, it's easy to forget that in 2016 and 2017, uh, there were a lot of people in the political center and, you know, rational, sane conservatives uh, who were also, you know, disturbed and anxious uh, and scared for this rapidly changing political landscape. And I think the main difference is that the normalization process acted even more quickly for people on the center and people in the center right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of a lot of those folks just simply adjusted and normalized and moved on, uh, and and then you know a good degree of those people shifted to the right as well. Um, but I guess like yeah, you know, the big question being like who cares about my account? So what what 
is my account actually uh, all about when it's on the comics page? Uh, and basically, uh, it started out just sort of like clearing, clearing the air in my head uh, mm -hmm. and recognizing, uh, I, I guess, looking for a lot of moments where I had these sort of incorrect assumptions. Uh, and a lot of that is before Election Day certain assumptions of progress or the, mm -hmm. you know, the fundamental survival of democracy. Whenever possible, I try to portray myself as the fool, uh, uh, you know, whether it's like big assumptions like the inevitability of Clinton's victory in 2016 um, and, or, or finding myself more aligned with some of the erroneous assumptions of my parents' generation than with the, than with those of millennials and recognizing that, you know, generation X by being raised by boomers, uh, have a different set of baggage, very broadly speaking. And so that became a new focus of the book is like, as I realized there were deeper and deeper connections, um, with some of these assumptions between boomers and generation X, suddenly I was like, yes, this is a, now that we've had enough of a generational shift that we're like two generations past this, it's time to unpack this baggage. Like a lot of this stuff, simply, I hadn't seen a lot of people write about. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that goes all the way down to, you know, I'm, as I'm sure we'll discuss later, the the essay I did about face, which is included in the book. And a lot of it was like very obvious observations that I simply hadn't noticed anyone else put together in a written piece or article. And so it was a matter of me just, you know, writing the thing that I thought needed to be out there in the world. Well, I got to tell you, uh, I, about face was absolutely one of the the segments in the book that hit me really hard. Uh, that that I was like, whoa, this is. It's it's not to say that the rev, the the insights or the observations you're making haven't been made by myself or other people in regard to the accoutrements of uh, you know the militaristic crowd. Uh, you know those people who are brandishing. Yeah you know, weapons and whatnot visibly and, and uh, et cetera. But it, it, there, there is a moment in that it, it part, part of it's the way that you say it, but it's, it's, it's the way you put it all together and make it clear that what happened on January 6th last year and those people who were, who were uh, at the center of it, uh, not the, the, not the administration, not, we're not talking about the people like Trump and all the people around him, but we're talking about the people on the ground, whether it's those militia, like the proud boys and all those people and how they pulled all of these signs and symbols together to assemble a kind of identity for themselves out of all of these elements, whether it's growing facial hair or it's wearing wraparound sunglasses or driving, uh, you know, trucks that with the, the windows blacked out, or it's, um, it's using the skull insignia, uh, symbol, uh, the Punisher logo over and over again. It, it's how all of those things come together to create an identity for a group of alienated people who have come together with this belief system that is well it's it flies in the face of the idea of community it flies in the face of the idea of a shared government a shared society as you put it the the elements i think of civil society are being um undermined and dismantled as right in front of us and and this the growth of this this alienated you know, group of people who have taken on these accoutrements 
the word you used was normalized. It, it normalized all of these, these attitudes so that we know they're there. We see them every day. We drive to work. We encounter them. We've grown. It's grown to be part of normal uh, society and we accept it. But at the same time, we never really, it never really brought home the, the reality of what those groups of folks were espousing through their choices visibly. And you make that very clear in that piece. I know that took me forever to come to that, that idea, but, and it just hit me like a sledgehammer, you know, like, wow, this is, this is exactly what we've been watching happening for 20 years now. And Certainly. I think a lot of it is like not only just, you know, ad- adopting, you know, and consolidating this, uh, this sense of externalized identity, but I think in the bigger sense, it's that the notion of the ways in which uh, the concept of identity, uh, it, to a great degree, because of social media, has allowed a lot of the visual, you know, signs and tools for projecting identity has allowed it all to kind of be flattened, uh, not only just removing nuance, but allowing uh, symbols and iconography to become shorthand for other shorthand, for other shorthand, sort of like symbols becoming, symbols meaning each other, uh, sort of becoming this collapsible uh, stack of identity. Um, And uh, I guess from the earliest roots of it, it goes back to just bumper sticker culture. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of it is so referential, uh, just sort of in its own universe of reaction and conversation with other symbols um, that, uh, especially as goods, you know, make money as there are, you know, cottage industries and little niche markets for a lot of uh, these symbols and iconography. Uh, it does get normalized quickly, especially when a an ostensibly like apolitical entity like Under Armour uh, picks up on that aesthetic and exploits it to the fullest to make money, uh, but also participate in the process of evolving these symbols like. In 2015, uh, for example, the like the black and white, you know, fascist American flag mm-hmm. had already been sort of presented. But when T-shirt manufacturers started to get in on the game, uh, and I guess this is really coming from my perspective as you know a punk band member and record label person, when you're silk screening shirts, you know, like you're looking for ways to process your image so that you're using as few colors as possible. Mm-hmm. And so recognizing that it was this apolitical, you know, decision to manufacture uh, shirts that feature only one color of silkscreen ink on the back or on the sleeves with, you know, white plus the shirt color uh, mm-hmm. as, as the uh, screening choice, that then changes the, the range of of impact and influence for something like the black and white American flag variant, uh, and even though it's it was already being explicitly used in this sort of authoritarian paramilitary context, uh, a lot of the the water gets muddied, you know, when you're able to point to just run of the mill consumer goods that are using the same design, um, and I think you know people are nervous about confronting that. Uh, and so it took it took me a while of like noticing these things every day to realize like no I'm on to something I just need to lay this out because it seems like no one else is going to at this point. Yeah, and I think it sounds like you have a background um, that makes it 
made it very uh made wherein you were able to make the connections not only as a visual artist but it sounds like you were you did some t-shirt work and uh and that kind of makes it clear um it, you know the whole thing reminds me of there was some um, there was a documentary it was called it was out in the 80s it was on pbs and it was called um making sense of the 60s and it, this was the 80s looking back to the 60s so it's it's dated by now but I remember there's a there's a moment in, in which Graham Nash is talking about um, the length of hair, uh, you know, growing one's hair. And, and, and it's kind of interesting in the 60s. There was this idea of um, how you could be walking down the street. And if you saw somebody across the street who had long hair like you did, you both kind of nodded each other. And what you he said, you knew something about that person. As soon as you saw them, you knew that they probably they were into good music. You knew that they probably knew where you could get the best pot. They knew, you know, they were you were into the right ideas about how to live. There was a whole thing. And he said, it's kind of a strange thing, isn't it? To think that hair could signify that. But it's along the same kind of lines that that these are messages that that are being sent back and forth, the telegraph to one another, whether it's based on the T-shirt that one's wearing or it's the facial hair and the, the sunglasses or the, the you know, um, the uh, flag that you're flying or whatnot. And it almost seems like that right beneath our noses, there's been this code going back and forth among individuals that were preparing for something like January 6th and maybe preparing for something now. Um, that, as you note, has also been co-opted by corporations just for with no other aim than to make money, but all at the same time without without their taking the time to be aware of what they were doing, participating in in a sense in the same kind of alienation and dismantling of the republic. Um, it's It's a frightening process because it's so natural in a way. Without a doubt. And there are moments also where uh, these are sort of like the sort of like nonverbal information and save it for later. But, you know, I might go to length to sort of like lay out these like, you know, want to be tough guys with their, you know, sunglasses, their beards, their mm -hmm. trucks or whatever. Um, and specifically about this, the sort of like lack of identifiable characteristics, uh, you know, and the lack of accountability and all this. Um, but this, like the moments in which I try to push my own reactive participation in this kind of like poisonous circle, uh, there are these moments throughout the book, particularly in one of the opening scenes, uh, where I'm getting in a real life tussle with this like mid, uh, middle school mom taking kids to school and this back and forth we have the night, the oh, morning yeah. after election day. Um, you know, there are these moments where it's very clear that I look indistinguishable from the cross-section of tough guy that I'm besmirching in the book or that I'm warning about. Uh, and, uh, you know, like, while, while taking great pains to kind of steer clear from any kind of both sides-ism, uh, you know, there's always this underlying very personal struggle, basically, to reject... Uh, outright, you know, dismissal and dehumanization of the people around you. And so these are the moments in which I try to show instead of tell the ways in which I fail to do that, in which, you know, most of us fail to do that on a on a daily basis at some point. Um, 
So uh, yeah, there there were moments where I was certainly working it out through the page, and sometimes I, I just realized it while drawing it that I'm just like sitting in an SUV with sunglasses and a beard, giving an angry face, uh, having some like political argument with the person in front of me in traffic, uh, recognizing that I'm basically looking in the mirror to a degree at uh, some of the you know eternally reactive hell we live in. Except, you know, to a degree, I'm also part of the problem here for sure. Well, that's that, yeah, that is interesting. And uh, I'm actually going back. I've got the book in hand right now and I'm looking at those pages 12, 13, uh, where you have that encounter the morning after the election with, uh, you know, uh, a mom driving her kids to school. And she's got what looks like three daughters in the back seat, and uh, you give them the finger because they've got a sign on the back of their car, which is, you know, overtly uh, kind of aggressive. It says "Losers for Prison," which I'm sure, you know, they're talking about Hillary as well as, um, you know, anybody who voted for her, I suppose. Yeah, in, uh, in real life, it was Hillary for prison that oh, was Hillary putting prison. soap on the back of the car. But yeah, like I generally made the choice to to not name the candidates. Uh, because I thought at the t- like, especially in 2018, I felt that that was going to wind up being a distraction that would mm-hmm. date that, that people would use to kind of date the work and not mm-hmm. extend it into the 2020s and the 2030s uh, when all of this is obviously going to be a problem for the rest of our lives. Yeah. Well, and uh, we'll touch on that in a minute, too, uh, the, the rest of our lives and what 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 the future portends but here in this image which is striking because i didn't make the connection again until you did uh on on what is this page number at the end of about face um page 112 there is a great moment where you show uh as you said one of the aggrieved insecure white americans with an exaggerated sense of sovereignty uh these are the future fascist paramilitary participants in their ushers take them seriously and when i look at the drawing of that gentleman there in front of the black and white flag uh and i flip back to the image of you on page you know 12 13 and, and that whole segment yeah it really could be interchangeable it could for be sure i'm just like a wimpy version of that guy yeah <laughs> uh and and you know i think that's really that is absolutely an important thing it is it is really easy to get up on and 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 this just perpetuates the the distance between you know uh groups at odds with one another is this idea to get up on a high horse and claim moral authority um at the expense of uh, the person that you're speaking to but I, I think there's a moment also where in the book where you're you're at the end of the book uh in the chapter you call i think it's wing nuts um you're walking around town with your signs um and encountering a, a gentleman who you know is wearing he's got a confederate flag hanging in his house he's got a belt buckle with a confederate flag and and he asks you you know outright what is your sign about and you guys engage in a conversation that ends in a handshake and those kind of moments you know it's easy to see that kind of thing as a uh, a platitude or something but it really is real and and those kind of moments are really important where you we can have a dialogue and and discuss the issues at hand and find out in a sense that at the core of it we're just human beings who are trying to get through the day and try to be decent people but there is a lot of the stuff in in the way of being decent sure. and i'd say like as far as the context for that that 
that scene and the way that situation played out in real life, uh, that was me, you know, doing a, a DIY, a DIY protest, marching around with with signs against uh, youth immigrant det- detention camps, you know, in in the American desert uh, with my maybe six year old, five or six year old. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say that without my kid there, it would have been a lot harder, if not impossible, for me to actually, you know, swallow it a bit and engage in the conversation that actually resulted in a good, enlightening outcome. Uh, uh, and uh, it, without having to, ba- basically, without my very observant six year old noticing. Uh, the blatant hypocrisy of my warnings, like do not engage people if you mm. see them, you know, rocking the Confederate flag, uh, recognizing that I was stepping into a contradiction. Uh, my parental mind kicked in and I realized the only way to do it was to see it all the way through. Uh, and and uh, I'd say without my kid there, that wouldn't have been the outcome from that from that conversation. And I'm not sure if there would have been a conversation. Um, That's interesting. Uh, you, in, in some ways, our children make us better people. Just, just oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Presence. Um, the, so, you know, that, that conversation, however, did lo- lead to some kind of meeting of the minds, but you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I think there, there is this, one of the things I've often thought is, well, two things. One, we all live in our, we all live in our, you know, um, these days, our media bubbles, right? We, and we interact socially with people, uh, via social media who are within one camp in our camp, more or less than the other. I mean, that's the, the usual idea, right? That we surround ourselves with like-minded people. And, and this is, help cultivate, you know, the problems that we're, we're seeing today. But at the very core of it, there, there is a sense, whether it's, uh, we're talking about the guys who were, you know, in the paramilitary groups, or there are people like yourself and, and me, um, you know, who are much less uh, aggressive in our um, expression, perhaps, of, of um, or dissatisfaction. There is a sense of dissatisfaction. There's a sense of distrust. There's a sense of, of futility. There is a sense of disappointment in government and the way it works. There's a desire to have, you know, decent, decent jobs, a decent uh, uh, standard of living, um, fairness, all kinds. There's some very core ideas that lay at the, at the, the base of these gr- disparate groups. It's not like we're all looking for entirely different things, although, you know, as as we get away from those core elements, you know, there are things that are overlapped on top of them that become that define these groups one way or the other. One of the big issues we're talking about, you know, is racism and the idea of white power. And and that's an issue that's wholly belonging to, you know, this this other element. But um, what what it seems to me is like if you can engage people on the basis of some of these core ideas and and i think some of the things that you were talking about in your signage you know you're walking you're wearing you're you're holding up signs that that have slogans on them that are that are more universal as opposed to being polarizing um finding a way of saying things that touch on the humanity you know that that we share and trying to con- connect and communicate 
through a language that is not so steeped in the terminology of ideology or polarization. And I think that that was kind of, there's an awareness there, I think, that that there is some kind of, there is at the very basis of of all of this, some kind of shared grievances that we're trying to address, whether we're coming from one end to the other. Oh, yeah. And and I think that's most pronounced when you get into uh, issues of class uh, and, and I guess, related uh, to, to the core issue. Once you start after years of trying to avoid this, really embracing that once you start framing things uh, as moral arguments, um, there's a lot more crossover there. But yes, you're you're absolutely correct. Uh, once we once people get a whiff that there is the kind of binary uh, political, you know, social political worldview that may underlie any kind of discussion that you're having. Um, I, we've just been way too hardwired in the last 25 years, like in the Fox news, mm-hmm. uh, in the post Fox news era, uh, we've been hardwired to try to allocate any social issue, uh, by a political binary. And so mm-hmm. I think one of the challenges, um, for me when doing either DIY protest, uh, or being part of a larger mass protest, uh, uh, engaging uh, or crafting signs or communication in a way that kind of uh, skirts around an easy classification into a political binary. Um, and so, yeah, for example, that Confederate flag belt buckle wearing dude uh, who's asking about, uh, you know, asking about my kids and my signs about concentration camps and detention camps. Uh, the way around it was was by framing was by setting aside for the moment uh, any any position on illegal immigration or asylum seekers uh, and simply trying to approach the the highly specific circumstance of families being separated and minors being placed in these concentration camps yeah. without uh, any infrastructure allowing them to be reconnected with their families. Uh, And once I was able to, for the moment, kind of set aside uh, the easy classification into a a political argument and simply approach the moral crisis of family separation, that dude was immediately on board. Um, And I mean, to to some degrees, just that, that one story is a bit of a token anecdote, but it totally worked at the same time. Uh, and so with the success of, of conversations like that, I've been able to have locally, you know, it, it's really uh, it's really pushed uh, embracing uh, the moral framing of a lot of social and political issues. And I think a lot of my work with Congressman Lewis uh, mm-hmm. and recognizing that a lot of the uh, a lot of the philosophical and strategic agree- disagreements he had with a lot of his peers, uh, a lot of those differences came from the fact that, yes, John Lewis did see things through a relatively simple moral framework, um, which put him at odds with a lot of people uh, throughout the movement and after the movement. Um, But he certainly had an impact on me and sort of swung me into that territory of seeing the value in pursuing the moral framework for a lot of these arguments. 
Well, yeah, and that runs through March too, right? I mean, as he he encounters difficulty within the SNCC or or other organizations as he moves forward um, through that story, he encounters not only different opinions in terms of how to, you know, uh, go about working for uh, civil rights and working for equality, but um, philosophical differences and and then structural differences, pragmatic differences. And uh, it seems like he never loses that that basic set of ideas, you know, first his belief in nonviolence as a as a way to move forward, his belief in an integrated group of of um, individuals working for change. Um, there were a lot of different ideas that that ran through, uh, and all of them seemed to stem from this this morality, this moral view that he had. And yeah, when it comes to politics, I mean, that's a recipe for disagreement with political um professionals right i mean because the that the very nature of politics professionally anyway is is um looking for the answer immediate answers that are um uh what easily accessible and address immediate problems but not always with the moral vision i mean more morality is sometimes placed to the back of the you know the room in regard to um the the approach to a variety of issues and strategy comes to the fore um did you have opportunity for you know those kinds of philosophical discussions with congressman lewis uh yes uh, you know i we started traveling together and spending a lot of time together in 2013 uh and we continued that until the very end of 2019 so along the way you know at, at our peak uh, about once a week for years, we were somewhere across the country doing talks or community visits or signings, uh, eating a lot of meals together, going on a lot of walks and a lot of car rides, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of time spent at the airport. And uh, as we were working on March in real time, you know, not only were there, those were practical opportunities from a creative standpoint to kind of get in there and get clarification or details or push back on some things in the book as I was drawing it. But um, watching the situation shift on the ground in real time between 2013 and 2019 um, really, you know, made for some very urgent, some urgent discussion, you know, amongst us and Andrew Iden and our editor Lee. Uh, and so, yeah, it was very much you know, March was very much a living thing while we were in the process of writing and drawing and editing uh, and and watching its role in the world around us change. Um, But yeah, I was I was very fortunate to be able to, you know, ask a lot of questions and do a lot of listening to Congressman Lewis over those years as well. You know, one of the things about March that strikes me is exactly that it's a living document. I mean, anybody who who doubts the the necessity of the Voting Rights Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, and um, and voting rights legislation. Anybody who doubts that there's still a problem in this country in regard to to access to the voting booth, um, you know, this book just makes it so clear that 
it's never guaranteed. And, and, you know, um, and the struggle is just so profound and so, so, uh, Titanic, you know, the, the forces aligned against the civil rights movement against John Lewis and against those organizations that were working for, for the, uh, access to the ballot box in the, in the fifties and the sixties to equal rights, to the ability to sit down at a dinette and, and have a cup of coffee. Um, I mean, the violence that that they encountered for just asking for the right to be treated like a human being. And this goes on. It's not stopped. But the book makes it very clear that this is it's not necessarily a forever war, but it's a war that continues. And, well, it's, and I, that, yeah. that's a that's, I guess, a good way to pose that is that it's it's not a forever war in the sense that the civil People, people by now, by 2022, need to recognize uh, that you know the civil rights movement did not have a clear-cut final victory, and that the what is identified as the civil rights movement uh, is a movement and a struggle which continues to this day. This sounds extremely obvious, but it's the fact that people dismiss something like that as being too obvious really gives the game away the fact that 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 black americans are still struggling for to have the fulfillment of basic full citizenship in our society um and so along the way you know doing the march trilogy and then doing run like but particularly with book three of march um so i was drawing that in 2015 into 2016, uh, every few weeks we kind of have to get in the ring and have a conversation amongst ourselves about whether or not we needed to uh, write in some kind of commentary which would connect the historical events to the events of 2014, 2015, 2016. Uh, and every single time, you know, our conclusion collectively was that if we do our job right in the pages of the comic, readers should make those connections themselves. Like a lot of it is, a lot of the process of doing March and a lot of what empowered me to be able to kind of confidently do Save It For Later was this notion of having a little faith in the person reading your book, that they're living in the same world as you and that um, these connections are going to be made if you do your job right as a storyteller. Yeah, and and I think that that's very clear. I mean, the the, the thing that kept coming up to me as I read March uh, this past this past December um, was was how apropos it was, and how the struggle goes on, and how the discussion we're having is yeah, okay, it's moved forward, but at the same time, two steps forward, one step back, kind of thing. The, the The idea is again, as John Lewis said, is that the struggle spans generations. This is about all of us, and this is going to span your lifetime, and it's going to span the next because the 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 struggle. The struggle for democracy and real democracy and right. the struggle for equal rights um, is a continual struggle. And while we may give lip service to it, the Supreme Court said it doesn't. Oh, it seems like we've come forward. We don't need to have the Voting Rights Act anymore. So gut it in 2013. The reality of it is when you see the, the power structure that's aligned against real democracy, real representative democracy, um, the, the money that is 
you know, aligned against it. You realize that, oh my, and reading March, you realize that, that this, this just doesn't end. You have to continually right. struggle for it. And, and, uh, and the book makes it very clear in particular that it's been on the, on the backs of black Americans by themselves for far, far too long. What happened in the 60s, white America sat back and watched a lot of that happen. Um, there were those who were participating, obviously, but um, in large part, most of us were seeing it via the television, you know, uh, in, in our homes throughout the 60s, rather than really participating. And uh, the reality is we all have to participate somehow, as you point out, and save it for later. And at the same time, you know, one of the, like, there, there's a particular sort of implicit focus on each of the March volumes. Um, and March book three really pushes, one, one of its two major points of focus is that it is, is trying to emphasize the active role uh, that media, you know, that journalism played in actual mediation of, in transmission and mediation of the movement itself. And, and in that, in that way, putting responsible, you know, journalism at the, at the forefront as a character of its own in the struggle, uh, like quite plainly, you know, the gains of the civil rights movement would not have been as widespread or as binding without the increasing news coverage, yeah. the necessary news coverage throughout the first half of the 1960s that actually forced the discussion into dinner tables uh, nationwide and kind of backed otherwise comfortable white Americans into a position of having to arrive at uh, a moral decision point. Yes. And, and, and without that media presence, uh, frankly, you wouldn't have a lot of those gains that were achieved uh, in the first half of the 1960s. Well, and, and, and we see, you know, the role of media, obviously, yeah, it's very clear in the 60s. It was very important in regard to civil rights when you're sitting in your home, however complacent you might be when you see somebody, you know, uh, groups of people sprayed with fire hoses and dogs going after them and you see people being beaten. And the same thing is true, you know, during the Vietnam era and you see the, the, the in 1968 at the Democratic Convention or you see uh, you know, what's going on, uh, in Vietnam itself, the media brought home those, I, those, you know, those issues and turned the tide. Absolutely. You know, played a, such an important role in turning the tide of public opinion one way or the other and made the moral, you know, made it clear morally from a moral standpoint, this is just wrong. You know, we can't treat human beings like this. We, this is, how can we accept this in this society? And what happened in Jim Crow so often was under the radar in terms of media throughout the forties or fifties, you know, um, the lynchings were going on. People in, in Northern States weren't, weren't seeing that in their media and you could turn a blind eye to it, you know, as, as you talk about also to, you know, your own grandparents or whatnot living in that structure um, and maybe perhaps feeling, having feelings about it one way or another, but, you know, never really engaging it in the same way uh, that certainly you have or even your parents did. But um, it, it, it's, it's without, being, without being confronted with the moral choice, right, it's easy to get along to go along. And, and I think that's one of the things that happens all too frequently. And I think March fights against that, um, sure. 
save it for later certainly carries that idea even forward you know it's one of the things about media that strikes me as we're talking is at the same time the role of media today is very important but it seems at the same time when it's almost as like that's fallen to the hands of of you know individuals with their cell phones to, photographing George Floyd being murdered you know i mean it's it's those instances that are bringing reality moral reality to people when you see that you just you know how can any human being accept that and not see it for what it is and yet you know on the larger scale corporate media has become ossified in a sense uh in the way that it presents things to us uh, you know this false equivalency uh the lack of moral clarity that seems to pervade most uh of the media that seem to have some kind of moral authority to one degree or another real or not you know in the 60s whether it's through uh, uh, walter cronkite or whomever um there was a, a sense of trust in media because it was limited uh and there was a sense of integrity in terms of journalism you know that's i'm i'm saying it in an overly simplistic way but today we rely on those people with cell phones you know uh to videotape and present to us what's really happening on the ground Um, because the other media sources seem to be in some sense like fox news cultivating um mindsets that are going to to fall into one category or another or that are contrived to be at odds with one another as fox news does you know clearly certainly it's big money yeah yeah you know disagreement among people is big money you know discontent and and um uh uh, discord is a source of financial revenue for people like you know uh rush limbaugh uh though he's I'm not going to say rest in peace because that's not, <laughs> but, um, but nevertheless, you know, those people were making money off of, um, the, the, uh, disagreements and the anger that was created between people. But, um, so, you know, Nate, let's backtrack a little in terms of your, your life. Um, how, well, okay. Who were you before March and how was it? that you know i know you're a comics guy i know you did acclaimed work and um but i guess politically and and you know where where were you prior to march and how was it that you came to be seen by congressman lewis and be chosen for this work and you know how did that all happen and Uh, and again who were you you know i mean politically beforehand well i mean i really had was on the same page uh, in, in terms of my social political viewpoint. Uh, a lot of my sense of social conscience and the, I guess the template for my political viewpoints came from a, a potent mix of 80s thrash metal, uh, underground hardcore punk of the 90s and Chris Claremont's run on the X-Men. I mean, that's, being a 12 year old and you know like listening to anthrax among the living and reading uh for my young mind you know reading about uh oppression in the pages of x-men uh as you know a proxy for racism sexism homophobia nationalism xenophobia that was really powerful stuff for me and i'd say um growing up in underground punk in the 90s and beyond, 
there is, you know, a very active sense uh, of doing what you can with what you have and then expanding that from creative efforts into social participation and political awareness. Um, so, you know, I I was a part of, you know, protesting against wars and being a part of like food, not bombs in whichever town I lived in uh, to redistribute, you know, wasted food uh, and give it away for free. Um, and, uh, you know, localized protests against, you know, wrongful killings and police brutality. Uh, the, these are just kind of part and parcel of growing up in punk and being surrounded by a creative community of people who uh, were looking to fight back, you know, against power and inequality. Um, I guess getting started on the March, the March trilogy, that happened at the exact same time I became a parent. Hey listeners, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you're enjoying today's interview. If you are and you want to show support, head on over to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. At Patreon, you can contribute as little as a dollar on a regular basis to ensure the longevity of this podcast. Your support will help keep it not only commercial free, but free to the listening public. And in exchange, you'll get some pretty neat stuff. There are at least three different tiers. Each level offers its own distinct reward. So check it out today at patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Any amount is welcome, and your support is greatly appreciated. Thanks again, and that's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. So there, in a lot of ways, there, there's a series of, of big shifts in my life. Like I stopped being in bands. Uh, my, my band time was then replaced by just being a dad. And, uh, and I was already a full-time cartoonist, but, you know, having definitely like needing to support a baby, uh, while trying to, you know, hold on to the very tenuous achievement of staying employed as a cartoonist, um, involved just like really streamlining the way that I approached making work and getting comics done. Um, I, I'm a person who's always made my deadlines. And so that was when Chris Staros reached out suggesting that I try out for the role of artist uh, for March. Uh, it, it really wasn't his decision. He was just pointing me in the direction of Andrew and Congressman Lewis. But uh, one of the main reasons he reached out to me was because I don't miss my deadlines. Uh, and another big reason was because he knew that I didn't shy away from social and political issues in my comics, even though most of my comics were, you know, kind of weird, sweet, creepy, magical realism. Mm -hmm. uh, there, like so much of it is deeply, deeply entrenched in people just kind of struggling for dignity and sovereignty and being taken seriously. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'd say that my role doing March, you know, was also transformative in that, you know, I grew up in the South in the 80s and my parents are Southern and I did get a very basic working knowledge of civil rights movement history as a kid. Um, but a lot of what I learned or thought I learned remained unquestioned until I started working on March. Uh, or even maybe just a little bit before that, as I was uh, working on Any Empire and The Silence of Our Friends. Um, 
but I'd say like the process of relearning uh, civil rights movement history through John Lewis and his account, but also through related historical accounts. Like a lot of it was like sending myself back to school. Uh, there's a lot of reading involved and a lot of listening. Um, and, uh, you know, the real earth shaker was in the recognizing, you know, all the all the stuff that I incorrectly assume about civil rights movement history, especially as like a 1990s punk who, you know, came of age in the era of like the anti WTO IMF protests mm -hmm. uh, in the era of, you know, a very media savvy anarchist uh, group called Crime Think, which I was not a part of, but their aesthetic and their publications were everywhere. It was sort of like pushing back and questioning on this, this notion that I had internalized about uh, even coming from pretty far left, this notion that, you know, the press was the enemy of a, of a protest movement um, and seeing it in a very binary sense. And so there was a lot of really embarrassing confrontation I had to do with my own assumptions in terms of recognizing the role activists played with the media to coordinate their actions and publicize their actions. Um, but then also just recognize, just kind of like trying to get rid of these narrative, these kind of binary narratives. The most obvious one is like that, that Professor X versus Magneto dynamic between Dr. King and Malcolm X. I think that's the most obvious example. But the ways in which we learn civil rights movement history through a lot of these really easy binaries or analogies. Uh, so a lot of that just kind of had to be thrown out. And it was a it was a thrill to kind of start from scratch and just come from a place of listening to the source. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, and you're right in, when talking to John Lewis, you're right in the thick of it. And, uh, and there's no other, you know, more source with more integrity, right. Than, than right. John Lewis. So, so how that first process, so, so they looked at portfolios from a variety of people. And what was it about your portfolio um, that struck John Lewis? Uh, it, well, there's a couple of things, I guess. First off, and, and this is coming from Chris Staros uh, off the bat as reasons why he recommended me. And some of this has been backed up by Andrew, um, you know, once we really got started working and traveling and stuff. Uh, but some of it was stylistically the fact that I work in a, you know, fairly in a detailed, realistic style that also has a lot of room for cartooniness and, emo you know, emotive expression. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this part of me that clearly my favorite cartoonist is still Arthur Adams. And so part of my, in my mind, part of me is always aspiring to be Arthur Adams. But there's there are these other parts of me which are really beholden to John Porcelino uh, or Eddie Campbell. Uh, and a lot of it was that that line between very expressive, subjective cartooning and being able to just kind of nail details. Yeah. Uh, that was a balance they were looking for. Uh, another component was just the fact that I'm a Southerner and I had not only not only cultural, but topographical uh familiarity with a lot of the settings. I had visited a lot of these places as a kid uh, or as a young adult. I, I was familiar with a lot of the exact locations, but also the plant life, the lay of the land, uh, you know, food, 
uh, like I, I had to a degree my own set of resources and sense memories I was able to tap into. So there are a lot of moments uh, in March in which uh, while I'm, you know, while we're exploring Montgomery or Birmingham or just outside of Troy, Alabama, like I know that stretch of land. And in some places I specifically know a certain hill or a certain field or a certain block of downtown Montgomery. And those were the moments I would allow myself to, to draw what I remembered from my memories, even though it was from a different decade. Uh, so there was a lot of strength in that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the other main reason was that, yeah, like they knew the book was going to get done on time when we said it was going to get done. Um, even as the book, even as March became an all consuming, uh, endeavor, uh, with, uh, you know, the second full-time job on top of drawing it was touring and speaking about it. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, it, it became vitally important just to be able to get X number of pages done per week. Well, and and so was that John Lewis's schedule, or was it it was the publisher who had decided this is when the books are coming out one two three? Well, a lot of it was uh, I, I give most of the credit there uh, to Andrew. Like we we really weren't in a a publishing crunch time for book one. I think we finished it late in February of 2013, and it didn't come out until um, August of 2013. Uh, but by that point, we had already gotten started on book two, and we were sort of like the the day that March book one dropped. Uh, we had a lot of revelations about what we needed to do, like immediately learning, immediately learning that history teachers were teaching it in schools as history, which th that sounds like a no brainer. But being, you know, like a snotty literary graphic novelist. Uh, I, I would assume that, you know, graphic novels would be taught by an English teacher in English class. And I just hadn't wrapped my head around what it meant to have the book, which is a historical document, actually be followed through and taught as history. So like a lot of it was having crunch time. We were like, how do you keep a history book in class? What are the guidelines? Educating ourselves along the way. Um, and uh I'd say we we recognized that like book two uh, and book three were going to be aligning with uh, you know like we were trying to get March book one out in time for the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. That was the the, the anniversary deadline we were butting up against, and that was that was easy to hit because we saw it coming from a long time a long distance away. Um, but you know as as all those 50 year anniversaries started piling up over the process of working on the books, mm -hmm. uh, then it was just a matter of really engaging on social media, engaging in real life while we're doing spe speakings and signings and community events to talk about these individual events on their anniversaries, even while we're doing making new volumes of the book in real time. So in that aspect, that's where March became a project or a mission beyond just being books was the fact that people were actually using them and applying them and, you know, uh, they, they were functioning as intended. And so the best way to follow through was to be physically present in the world together to actually address a lot of these uh, uh, historical events on their anniversaries or, or acknowledge them in real time. 
it's it seems to me too that that in in a sense that goes on that because the book is so timely as i said you know there as the discussions for voting rights is going on in the senate today uh you know the book is there again and it's in my hands i think it's it, i hope that it's in uh classes throughout the country uh where um the trilogy rather um where students are engaging this as the discussion goes on. It's a great lesson in civics, but it's also a necessary lesson that I think is too often overlooked. And that, that is how difficult the struggle was and how what kind of courage it took to to achieve what was achieved in the 60s and then go forward, which is what RUN does. It goes, picks up after that and moves forward. And we'll talk about that in a, in a second. Um, so one of the things that I love about your work uh, on on these books is the immediacy of your work. There's um, there is a freshness to the way you know, and and I'm assuming that you're working with a brush most of the time. Yeah, it's about fifty uh, fifty brush and nib pen. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and and you're still working old school, not not on a pad or anything. You're, yes, indeed. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about ink uh, all over the place. Anyway. Um, and it feels that way. The books are real inky, whether it's Save It for Later or we're talking about March. But the immediacy of it makes brings it. I mean, I think it was absolutely necessary that somebody with your kind of skills, which I think, you know, and no disrespect to Arthur Adams, there's a kind of um, uh, a different quality, a more uh, reserved quality and in, in more controlled quality in a sense. And not that you're not in control, but your work feels of the moment. It feels almost like it was conjured up and put down on paper, uh, you know, the instant that you were reading in, uh, the script and feeling the story, your images just poured out of you. And I, I know that's not the way it happens, but no, but I mean that—that's those are the moments of magic when you actually catch that happening. Uh, I guess to put it in a, a nerdy comics binary, those are the moments where instead of conjuring Art Adams, where I know I'm conjuring Bill Sienkiewicz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, yes, we have this moment of rawness where I'm able to kind of just go with the ink and allow allow it to flow out. Yes, so that like process-wise, those are the moments I I wait you know, for the, the stars to align and have a, a great day like that at the drawing table. Yeah. And, and you had plenty of them, <laughs> but you know, uh, I, I mean, this is true of save it for later too. These are deeply, the images come across as deeply felt. And I think for March, that is so is integral to its impact, um, is the fact that the images just hit you with this, this force, the force of, of, you know, the, the moment, comes across in the imagery and uh did did john lewis or or um andrew did they ever speak to that to you about your work did they encourage that or were they was it something that they noticed i mean the other thing that strikes my mind is did they did they sit down and have did they look at your pages as they were coming in and say make you know commentary here and there can you change this and move this around do you think you could see this in a different way did you ever have any of those kinds of encounters yeah, well, to answer that part of the question first, yes. So, I mean, constantly like going uh, by, you know, by penciling all of each book first uh, and then having having both of them and Lee Walton, the editor, review all that in time, uh, you know, we're able to make a lot of corrections quickly without the investment of sitting and inking and finishing an entire page. Because um, really, those are the moments where, you know, I'm primarily, you know, paying attention to John Lewis's first person account, his memories. Uh, but we're also, you know, balancing 
And countering that in instances with other historical accounts and first person accounts. And a lot of a lot of that responsibility, you know, fell on Andrew uh, as as writer and co-writer, you know. But uh, yeah, like recognizing as early on where there wasn't sufficient information for me to do my job, mm. uh, whether that was something that fell on asking Andrew or asking the congressman himself about a particular detail, or if it was something that I you know, basically developing a set of chops, which allowed me to find answers to those questions, um, especially if they had more to do with like, it's funny to use this term, but like the staging or blocking mm-hmm. that goes into certain scenes of some of these protests, some of these moments of protest, these historical moments, you know, I, it was awkward at times, but I, you know, I had to be in a position, a directorial position where I was thinking about staging and blocking and how, how light was working on that day or where groups of people were moving at a certain time, um, and whether or not something was visible. Uh, and, uh, so like getting down to the real nitty gritty of visual storytelling, there was a lot of stuff I had to send back up the chain to get a little more clarification on. Um, mm. but yeah, it was, it was very much an active process. Like Andrew Lee and I were in contact every single day of our lives for <laughs> years in the, uh, all day, every day, like at, by the end of March book three, which was done under nearly impossible circumstances, time-wise, uh, one of us was working on the book 24 hours a day for the last several months, of like throughout spring of 2016. And, uh, it was just a really immersive experience. Um, when, and when, when, when was March 3 uh, published? What was oh, the... yeah. It came out in on August 2nd, 2016. So I finished that one in May of 2016. Okay, 2016. Yes. So, uh, so we're talking about 51 years after voting rights. Yes, that is, uh, yeah, that is 50, correct. 51 so years. There, there was a bit of a shift in terms of our collaborative process. Like, if you, if you think about the account the historical account and John Lewis's role in it, like March book one, uh, a lot of it, not only is there less media documentation of a lot of the national protest movements, but so much of the content in March book one is strictly from young John Lewis's perspectives and memories. So a lot of it can be subjective. And also there's a lot of incomplete information, like in terms of reference, um, Another assumption that I was confronted with early on was when depicting his family when he was a kid. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember only having one picture of his family, which actually featured his dad and his mom and his kids. And his kids were adults by that point. uh, And only one blurry photograph that that featured his home outside of Troy. and and it was not it was not a very informative photo. And I remember kind of writing Andrew back and being like, yeah, uh, surely he's got, you know, some more pictures of his of his home and the farm and stuff. So could you send those to me whenever you get a chance? And I, I remember Andrew being like, look, man, his family grew up, you know, as poor farmers in rural, hyper segregated Alabama. There was no camera. There are no photographs of 
this house of this plot of land. There is one family photo. Uh, and, and, you know, that being a really important reality check, but also a way to set the tone for how to approach the absence of certain kinds of information. Um, so, yeah, it, it was it was a very immersive process. Uh, and at the same time, it was really validating to, like, turn in sets of pages and have Congressman Lewis, you know, respond uh, very emotionally uh, to, like, for example, the first 10 pages of March Book One, which mm-hmm. sort of does a, a sort of a dream sequence recap of a, or a precap of Bloody Sunday. Yes. And uh, I remember getting a message from Andrew where he's like, Nate, I just want you to know, I showed the first scene to Congressman Lewis. You made him cry instantly oh, uh, and said that you you captured the reality of the moment uh, and that you made it real. Uh, and, and that was one of these things where, yes, that's my job. But when I, when I actually did it, I wasn't prepared for the, you know, I guess the personal impact of what that would mean for him and what that would mean for, you know, his memories, his experiences and how he related to them. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's really interesting when I'm looking at those pages now and they really do place the viewer, the reader in in that in that melee at, at that time. I mean, you're, th- you're there in a way that I don't think, I mean, the only, only other medium that I think could come close, obviously would be film, but I think as documents of the civil rights struggle, March one, two, and three are so much more felt and so much more visceral than almost anything that comes to mind. I mean, they, they, it, it's immersive, right? And, um, and I think that's what you do in those first few pages. They, and it, so, you know, that must be an extraordinary feeling. You must, when, as you're working on the book, you literally trying to place yourself in some of these locales and some of these, these places as though you were there, as though you were an individual who was there trying to imagine what it, what that perspective would be like which uh, has to be a really difficult, but also moving process, I would think. Oh, without a doubt. And that's that sort of involved a re sort of reevaluation of the way the way that I was considering my role as artist. And a lot of that has to do with, uh, you know, coming from a lifetime of drawing comics as, you know, an auteur or whatever. And uh, really having my way of doing things and not needing to consider, uh, I mean, I've worked with other collaborators and writers and stuff before, but, you know, at the end of the day, having it always come down to me making my comic and telling my story my way. Um, And so much of the process of working on March, particularly, you know, in depicting so much brutality and dehumanization um, and depicting internal conflicts and schisms within the civil rights movement, uh, recognizing that like there was a level of anxiety and discomfort early on because I didn't recognize that fundamentally uh, it was never about me as I'm drawing the pages. Like there was a lot of constant recentering and reminding myself that Congressman Lewis chose me to tell his story through his eyes and in his words uh, and and recognizing that I was serving as a tool that brought these first person experiences to life again. Uh, at the same time, you know, like 
writing wise, I think Andrew and I, uh, when, you know, converting these into comics, uh, you know, Andrew certainly had a responsibility to counter and balance out and sort of add depth to, or, or I guess add a little bit more objective depth instead of subjective depth to some of the budding schisms, like the philosophical and strategic schisms in the civil rights movement. Uh, and so we had a responsibility to present John Lewis's first person account as memoir, uh, but also find a way to pose these differences of philosophy and opinion uh, in a way that gave respect and credence uh, to to those differences. Yeah, and sometimes and it wasn't expected, you know, like arriving at a point where eventually I realized that the schism between uh, Stokely Carmichael and John Lewis, you know, had intense philosophical uh, ramifications, but at its core, it was a profound clash of personalities uh, and not really knowing what to do with that. Uh, but then then recognizing I still had a job to do and my job was to tell Congressman Lewis's story from his perspective. So were you presented with a script from Andrew and and Congressman Lewis or were you given both script and uh, recordings, you know, of, of Congressman Lewis and his, his, uh, remembrances. I mean, how, what were you provided with when you said it was, yeah, it was, it was a finished script. Andrew wrote the script and this is where, uh, they are both co-writers. And yet the challenge here, I think as comics readers, uh, is to understand. And I didn't understand this until we've gotten halfway through March book one, is that a lot of these accounts Congressman Lewis had been telling since the early 1960s as a profoundly gifted oral storyteller. Yeah. Um, and so recognizing that there were there was a very long precedent to the word choices he made and, and the kinds of storytelling he laid out with his accounts, uh, but that the source material of the writing was not written. It was it was spoken. Uh, so there was a sort of a balancing that Andrew had to do. He did like years worth of interviews with Congressman Lewis uh, and getting him to go back and, and recover uh, the same story or answer the same question several times, getting new perspectives and new details out of it. Um, but sort of uh, keeping at the forefront that spoken oral delivery of a lot of this history. Um, and so the the crediting of writing occupies a, a unique place, I think, for March. Yeah, the script is Andrews, but the two of them wrote March together. Uh, and, and it's just that, you know, half of the contribution there, it comes from decades of, of meticulous uh, oral storytelling. So Andrew, who worked for Congressman Lewis, right? Yes. Um, he would, he, he had opportunity to travel with him, to listen to him, to hear these, uh, oral remembrances and to hear the oral history and, and to note it one way or the other to record it or to, to mark it down and then transform what he's heard into a script and then provide you with the full script. That's right. 
Were you given like leeway in terms of how to lay out each page? Was it like the kind of script like Alan Moore would give where, you know, all of the details are there or was it much more, you know, open to your interpretation? Uh, that evolved over time. Uh, it was a finished like page and panel noted script. Mm -hmm. uh, however, it, it should be noted, which Andrew will freely admit, March Book One was his first comic that he wrote and his first book. Uh, and so a lot of March book one, I, I think he was so he was so strongly influenced by the 1957 comic Martin uh -huh. Luther King Jr. and the Montgomery story that he was writing the the working script for March book one in a very Silver Age house, like executing a, a very Silver Age house style vision that involved okay. five or six panel pages Um there wasn't a lot of breathing room in that sense. So mm -hmm. I was a little heavy handed initially when I was breaking it down into thumbnails and, and then getting pages going based on my own storytelling sensibilities. Mm -hmm. um, but really the story of making March book one for us is that it, it is the process by which Andrew and I learn to work together. So from our perspective, March books two and three are very different from March book one. Uh, and March book two is really that it's like, it's sort of like the empire strikes back of the trilogy for us. <laughs> it's like, we really hit our stride where he, he had figured out how to write for the way I was going to draw and how to anticipate how I was going to draw. And then I was learning pretty well how to, how to interpret his script and recognize uh, certain components that needed to be there based on his writing. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there are moments where, uh, you know, like a lot of it is like our profound creative challenge was that we knew we couldn't remove any of the content from the books. Yeah. Um, we like our primary mandate was to tell the whole story. And a lot of the point of March was that whether it was Bayard Rustin or whether it was, uh, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker and Amelia Boynton and a lot of the people who were thrown, who were swept under the rug by virtue of being women or by being gay, uh, we wanted to make sure that the light was shown on them again. Uh, but at the same, so like there, there, were, there were all these moments where like, okay, we're sort of if we're worried about painting ourselves into a corner, as far as getting these on pages, what are creative solutions we can find to keep the information in the book uh, while giving ourselves a little bit of breathing room or while overlapping uh, or contrasting different, uh, different narratives at the same time. We, uh, that, that's where the creative work really started happening. Like March book three, we insisted that the book had to be, $20 or less because we didn't want it to be, we basically didn't want it to be out of the price range of people who wanted to buy it for use in the classroom mm -hmm. or for, you know, people who didn't have a lot of money. So we knew we had an upper limit of the number of pages that could be in the book. So we could not add to that number. And I had to choose very carefully which pages to use as splash pages or as breathing room pages mm -hmm. or to use for levity, especially as, you know, like book three is it's dense, it's brutal. It's a real tour de force to read. 
Uh, and so we had to make some wise and creative decisions in order to like make it a palatable read, number one, but also to make it just like not overwhelming uh, visually either. Well, you know, it, it's again that mediacy is there. There's uh, and and I, it's very clear the distinction that you're talking about from book one to book three. Uh, you know, book one is very much packed with panels on every page. There's less of the kind of dramatic emphasis that one f- sees with, uh, you know, full splash pages and whatnot throughout book three. Uh, it 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 flows more organically in books two and three. Not as in any criticism of of book one, but, um, I see what you're saying. I wouldn't have noticed it until you said it though. And, um, you know, looking back at, at them, uh, so I'm imagining then that there's a kind of organic interplay between you and, and Andrew, you're, you're discussing the pages as you, you create, as you conceive them, were you, um, working out thumbnail sketches or were you just like working on the page, you know, one page after another, um, you know, how preconceived was it when you, you sat down to work? Did you already have a clear idea or were you, you just, you know, one panel after another and one page after another? Generally speaking, I thumbnail the entire book first okay. and I turn in the thumbnails, then I pencil the whole book and I pencil in the lettering too. Uh, and that's real. And that, that stage when everyone is looking at and reading that, that is where most of the changes happen. And that's where you realize where most of the mistakes are being made. And when it's time to ink, uh, I mean, I definitely go through a few weeks worth of corrections at the very mm-hmm. end, mm-hmm. but it's mostly lettering corrections as, <laughs> as our information is being updated and we have to update the script. Um, but uh, like March book three, because of the time constraints, we, I, I went from having uh, nothing done, no thumbnails or anything, uh, to having a finished book in nine months. And, uh, and right before that, actually the day the script came in, uh, it was a very stressful year, uh, with a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. And I wound up getting shingles in my, uh, oh, like man. in my head and in my eye. Oh uh, man. Oh. And I went blind in one eye oh. for a month and I got permanent eye scarring and it, it's not all gone. Like I still get electrical storms in my, in my head and stuff from it. But I lost a month, like the day I got the script. And I was like, all right. Uh, And so basically what had to happen was I was like, you know, I emailed everybody and I was like, all right, I'm getting started. Here's the deal. I can do this. I've done the math and I know I can finish the book on time, but I don't have time to scan the pencils and send them to you. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to thumbnail these in chunks and show you what I'm doing. And I'm going to get two pages a day done. Uh, at least 10 pages a week, which is absurd. Uh, And I'm going to send them to you like two pages at a time. And I want you guys to review them and give me notes. Um, That way we can stay on top of things. Um, But it was, uh, it's the most intense comics work experience I've ever had. Uh, And so it, it involves simply having to go full steam ahead and really requesting that people have faith in my faith in my thumbnails uh, that that they were going to see something recognizable in terms of the finished page. Uh, uh-huh. And uh, somehow we pulled it off. And uh, it's, it's the kind of thing that also served as a, you know, a real learning lesson for me in terms of it being profoundly unhealthy to go about making a book in that way. And it's like as a cartoonist and as a parent, 
And as a husband, it's like one of those things where it's like at the top of my list is like, do not ever get in a situation where you have to do a book in that way ever again. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I can understand. I mean, shingles, for those who don't know, is one of the most painful uh, painful infections you can you can have and it's extremely dangerous in the eyes uh yeah. I, i'm a nerves so i'm really i'm just really glad that it didn't result in you know nerve damage further down my spine oh my gosh yeah i mean really it, it's that is uh, astounding and it, it shingles arises from you know i mean it's a it's a what is it? It's one of those infections that sits within you for years and years and years yeah, it's chicken from pox. chicken pox. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but then when it arises, a lot of times it comes from stress. And so, uh, obviously you were in the situation that was just ideal for the, for shingles to arrive and that's God awful. Um, so, you know, in the, in the process of, uh, I know in my own, my own self, my own way of working. When I go, first of all, thumbnails is like the worst thing for me. I can't stand doing thumbnails, but I do them all the time. But the reason is because I can't really conceive of how the text and the images are going to lay out because my thumbnails are small and sure. I can work out the kinds of images I want. It's a kind of notation though, in my own thumbnails that is indecipherable to anybody else. I mean, somebody looking at it is just going to see a scrawl, whereas I understand who this is and who that is. But having text in mind, it's like I can never in a small thumbnail figure out when and where the text is going to go. When it comes down to sitting to, to actually doing the pencils based off the thumbnails, a lot of changes happen. Something that worked in a thumbnail all of a sudden doesn't work on the page when I've got a full page in front of me or I need yeah. more room for text. That must have happened to you. Uh, periodically, I would think, and you you would have to go through changes that might have been dramatic, might have been important. Um, but it, it, I'm assuming at some point or another, they developed a confidence in you, and you developed a confidence enough to say this is the way it's going to be. Is that am I misreading that? Or oh, no, you're absolutely correct. Yeah, we we became a very uh, a very cohesive machine creative machine by by the end of the process uh and and really we all just worked well together in terms of making the book itself um practically speaking in terms of translating thumbnails to pencils and mm -hmm. making provisions for space and the flow of text the flow of panels um this is where because of the kind of book march was uh, and the fact, uh, I guess, and it's, you know, having to have a certain kind of concreteness and clarity in order to communicate X amount of information while keeping that expressive quality as, as high as we could. Um, thankfully, that kind of transformed the way that I handled putting information in my comics from, from then on. So uh, I feel like the first book I did after March was Come Again, which was a pretty far out there kind of like horror, existential horror, fairy tale book that takes place in the Ozarks. And it's really out there and really intimate and subjective. But even though it was like super dreamy and trippy, I found that that concreteness and clarity within my storytelling process for March made it so much easier to make out there comics like Come Again. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, I don't know, like, I think that was as a cartoonist, that was another one of the major, major steps forward over the process of doing March, uh, is I had, 
I guess I had up until a certain point, I had seen March as being sort of on its own planet uh, as opposed in terms of my work compared with the other work that I, I had done previously. Uh, but I think it had the most transformative quality on my trippy ass fiction that I made afterwards. And I'm very thankful for it. It actually like by nailing it a little closer, you know, tying it down to earth a little bit better, it allows me to do much more ambitious, far out storytelling. Obviously something like March as intense as that process was, is going to be transformative and, and have a huge impact. Um, it, like any intensive experience like that, it's going to put you through the mill. And clearly, uh, by the time the third book of the third book and now and save it for later, you know, I mean, there is a, a naturalness to save it for later um, in its layout and the way the images are concocted that uh, is really impressive. I mean, it's just, it, it's got that, that quality of, of just being intuited, uh, whether it's laid out preconceived in thumbnails or not, save it for later, uh, as highly scripted as it is, still feels very intuitive. And that's, I think that's so integral to the impact that your work has and that i i'm assuming you want it to have Thanks, um, yeah. that, that immediacy um so how did run then what was your role in regard to run and how did that come about uh, run well, came out this year it, really, it, it goes back to when we we're halfway done with march book three or it was around january 2016 and we were wrapping up the the cover for march book three uh i was halfway done drawing the book and we kind of had an internal discussion about what we were going to do with the next chapter in John Lewis's story, uh, which would ultimately find a home, you know, in Run. But the question at the time was, because this involves a, a huge shift from direct action into public service, and because the tone is darker, it's more personal, and really it culminates with him falling in love and getting married and like the transformative nature of relationships, you know, for him by the end of the sixties, we're like, the question is, is this March book four or is this something else? And mm -hmm. if it's something else, what is it? And so we all talked about it for, for several weeks. And in the end, we're like, okay, number one, trilogies are a thing for a reason, but more importantly, uh, even though, you know, John Lewis obviously, you know, felt that the civil rights movement didn't actually end with the passage of the Voting Rights Act and, and the battle continued, as evidenced in the first scene of Run, uh, just two days after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, when he's back in the streets doing a small protest in a small town with 12 other people. Uh, but even though he acknowledges that, uh, as he himself says at the end of March book three, the passage of the VRA was the end of the movement as I knew it. Mm -hmm. um, and so to sort to take that seriously and be like, okay, so that is the end of March. That's March, uh, which sort of we're like, well, let's let's set the rest of this aside and let's figure out how this is going to become its own book. Um, and by that point, you know, by 2017 and 2018, uh, I had put two full-length graphic novels uh, on the back burner for several years. That was Come Again and Two Dead. And mm -hmm. the time had come to actually to complete both of those books. And so I was not in any way available to just get in there and draw what became Run. So the question was, you know, finding 
finding a compatible, strong artist. Uh, but also I wanted to be involved and I wanted to be as involved as I could, you know, like personally and emotionally invested in this journey, but also in being a part of the process of being a caretaker for John Lewis's account of the movement uh, and, and protecting the legacy of his life and his experiences, but also the legacy of our work together. Mm -hmm. uh, so Andrew's solution for a lot of that was that uh, he wanted me to draw the first scene, not only basically as an aesthetic bridge between March and run, um, but also to, to underscore how there really is not a gap, a gulf between March and run. The fact that the scene that I drew takes place two days later um, indicates that, you know, like it, it wants you to put any assumption that there was that there was a binding immediate victory to the wayside um and aesthetically i think andrew's immediate request as we were going about the process of finding an artist was seeing if i could letter the book uh and i don't have actually i have very weak photoshop skills so i was like i don't think i'm going to be hand lettering this book so we made a font using mm -hmm. my lettering and then i wound up hand lettering all the word balloons all the sound effects and and uh, getting involved on every page, uh, but Chris Ross and I lettered the book together. He's the graphic designer for most of my books. Um, so yeah, a lot of it simply had to do with remaining involved by choice, uh, but recognizing that there had to be limitations to my involvement, like practical limitations. And you know, I was at peace with that, and and we were all at peace with that. Um, and so is this the way it goes in book two and book three of Run as well? Uh, is that Well, we're kind of figuring out that at this point, you know, like um, we were finishing up Run book one when Congressman Lewis passed away and he, yeah. he saw most of the finished pages. Uh, he saw all of the book at some stage of completion. But uh like we still have to really come to a point in terms of whether it is appropriate to continue and do run book two and I run see. book three uh, or not. And that comes from a lot of not only an ethical standpoint, uh, but from a practical and legal standpoint. Um, and and also just in a general moral sense of like, what is the right thing to do in terms of carrying on this story in the pages of these books? Yeah. Um, and that's that's a decision that's it's ultimately Andrews, uh, but it's something that you know we're we're kind of you know we're going to need to arrive at a conclusion pretty soon. But it was just it was such a it was such a an experience to finish this over the the end of Congressman Lewis's life, and then to kind of be able to bring it out into the world at the time in which it was. We kind of we kind of put those questions to the side for a couple of months just mm -hmm. to kind of see where the chips fall. So we, we don't have an answer for that yet. Okay. I, it's, you know, having read it, I can't wait for the next installment. That's, it's kind of the, the way it is. You want to find out, you know, the next step in the chapter in Congressman Lewis's story. And uh, it's really a great piece of work. The artist is uh, identified as Elle Fury. I don't know yeah. her work, but um, aside from this book, um, but she picks up where you leave off after the first introductory pages. Yes, she is. She's amazing. She mostly uh, did 
online comics, did some like humor comics and sci-fi comics. Uh, but uh, I, I wasn't involved in the selection process except just reviewing a little bit of stuff at the very end. Uh, but from what Andrew has told me, uh, when Congressman Lewis was reviewing prospective artists, uh, he didn't want to know anything about the artists who were turning in work. Like he wanted to actually do a portfolio review of sample pages blind. Oh, uh, I can, and, yeah. and yeah, he, you know, like it's a, she did an amazing job at finding a meeting point where there were echoes of my stylistic approach to March. Yes. Uh, while she found a really strong spot to not be tethered to it, which I, I found to be a big relief. Uh, and I, I tried to constantly kind of be there to be like, you're flying the plane now. You've got this. You don't you don't need to feel necessarily tethered to my approach to March. Um, but for for Congressman Lewis, I know a lot of it is like there there's a big significance to how each artist depicted John Lewis himself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with her depiction of him, he had the recognition. He was like, this feels like me. This mm -hmm. is the me that is telling this story. And I think that was a big, a big contributing factor was that she kind of nailed the way that he conceives of himself as a comic book character version of himself telling this history. You know, there's a kind of interesting the distinction between the two styles. As I said, yours, yours is very painterly all the way through and i can feel the brush work in that book this book is more pen oriented it seems to me more linear um in a lot of ways uh shape conscious maybe in, in some sense um shapes feel more contained let me put it yes. that way in in this drawing so it's a different it's got a different vibe to it um in in that look you know one of the things that's interesting to me um and i wonder if this is if they were looking for this that the work that they were the artists they were going to hire whether it was for march or now for run was going to be working in black and white and using a wash was that something that came with you or was that like a predetermined idea that they they kind of want somebody working in gray tones that came with me uh just before march I did a book called The Silence of Our Friends that came out in early 2012, and it's a 95% uh, autobiographical account of this guy, Mark Long, and his experiences growing up as a kid outside Houston, Texas in the mid-late 60s against the backdrop of a forgotten chapter of civil rights movement history. Mm -hmm. That was done in gray washes because I was doing another book in the Empire at the same time. And a lot of it was, you know, there was a period piece component where I was like, Silence of Our Friends was the first book where I recognized that this is a book about uh, social struggles in the 60s and communities in transition. And so there was a value to actually doing the book in gray because we're used to processing a lot of this history, you know, in the grays of black and white photography and film. But at the same time, like I did any empire just with black and white line art. And I I made a decision to just use gray washes on one of those books so that it wouldn't get boring. And I, I chose wisely by making the period piece in gray washes. So I think after I had already been chosen for the, the job of drawing March, there was a, a book review in The New York Times for Silence of Our Friends. Um, I think it was like a half page review or something. And Congressman Lewis saw it. And he was like, Andrew, is this the is this the guy that we that we got to do March? <laughs> and Andrew was like, yeah. And he's like, I've never seen a half page review for a 
iconic in the New York Times before with this much art featured. Uh, he's, and so he was, he was definitely on board. Uh, but that's one of the ways in which Silence of Our Friends was kind of like boot camp for me process wise, yeah. which allowed me to hit the ground running with March. So that sort of was proof of concept. And then it was a no brainer that I was going to do March in gray washes based on how the silence of our friends turned out. Well, I love I love the impact in March uh, and the use of gray washes throughout. I I also love the way it's developed in Save It for Later, where your your washes have become even richer. Uh, and broader in the fact that you're using not only the, you know, straight ahead India ink wash, but you're also using uh, what appears to be watercolor, some some beautifully muted uh, reds and blues and, and ochres and um, sepia tones Thank that you. run through it. Really nice, rich, but also at the same time, it's got this quietude to it um, that that uh, I think is really fitting for the work. Um you know, it's just beautiful the way you, you incorporate it. And it, it, um, it, yeah, quietude is the, is the word. This is not a quiet book, though. Um, save it for later. Uh, it's just a segue from March for a moment. Um, it's, it's a, for me, this is a troubling book. Um, it, it's, a, it's a great book. It's a, a felt book. But it's also disquieting, you know, and disquieting in the sense that I think the op, the outlook for the future is a very troubled one um, that I that and that trouble doesn't uh, isn't going to be easily resolved. And that's the feeling I get from this book. I don't know if that's what you were after. Oh, well, but, I mean, that's the truth. The outcome is very unresolved. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, it's important to recognize that I finished most of the book except for one chapter like I thought I was done with the book in late January, 2020. And I was like, well, that should do it. Uh, yeah. And uh, then just like week by week, uh, you know, adjusting to the complete shutdown of society mm-hmm. and uh, recognizing it. And, and also it's important to note, you know, uh, week by week uh, handling uh, Congressman Lewis's struggle with cancer yeah, uh, staying in touch and sort of moving on over to a role of friend, friend first, uh, a post collaborative relationship with him in those final months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then by May 2020, recognizing that I needed to add another chapter, uh, but also knowing that because of the publishing schedule, the chapter had to be finished before election day. Uh, so I think that actually put me in a really good, challenging uh, framework for doing the chapter Tornado Children, because it sort of forced me to put up front uh, to kind of undercut this idea that having uh, a victory of whichever Democratic candidate against this aspiring fascist would re- would equal some kind of victory over these problems, a permanent victory, uh, when, you know, it, it is my perspective and has long been my perspective that, you know, systemic problems like this are not going to be fixed simply by getting, a, you know, an election to go your way once. Uh, and specifically, you know, these are the kinds of problems, this problem of democracy and crisis uh, that is going to occupy most of our lifetimes. Uh, and so, you know, recognizing that it was, yeah, it was kind of like a, a false, a false, a false narrative that people want to follow, that they're looking for whether or not, you know, 
the book is contingent on the desired electoral outcome when that's not the point at all. The point is that the problems which brought us to the threshold of dictatorship uh, are still there and are in some ways stronger than ever. Uh, So yeah, it's kind of a bummer of a book, but, (laughs) but that's the point. It's like, what do you want? This is a bummer of a world. We're like, you know, we're, we're like really on the doorstep of like, without any paranoia, losing a lot of the basic tenets of representational democracy. And once it goes, it is not coming back. And it's not just the United States. You know, democracy is in crisis throughout the world. Uh, so it's like, yeah, what do you want? This is a this is a, this is a really tense time, and this is going to be a really tense book. You know, um, perhaps one of the the ways in which I show my age, but um, I think a lot of people, a lot of people thought with the election, uh, with the decision that was made in the election, the election of Biden, uh, that we'd be sitting back into a kind of quote unquote normalcy, you know, that things would quiet down and that um, Trump would slip into memory and we would move forward you know, as a country, uh, as though it had been a blip on the screen, you know, those four years. And what's happened, and clearly you saw this, is that indeed it's not ended. Um, We're, as you said, it's just as scary now as it was when Trump was in the White House, Um, particularly as the Republican Party has become the Trump Party and fallen in line behind him. You know, I'm reminded of uh, this morning I was reading some notes that Congressman Lewis had made following the gutting of the Voting Rights Act in 2013. And he was hopeful he was going to be able to work with Republicans in Congress to fashion, you know, a Voting Rights Act. And unfortunately, that's not the case, you know, that there's nobody across the aisle to work with, as we can see now. Uh, as Trump's hold on the party has become so pervasive. And uh, and that's one of the things that's really scary, but as, as we acknowledge that that's the, and I think this is yet to sink in to those establishment politicians, um, you know, in Washington, that they don't have a working partner. It didn't, you know, it, one of the things of the Obama years that always struck me is that, that he kept holding out his hand, at least until the later part of the second term. He kept holding out his hand to, to the party across the aisle when Mitch McDonald, all he wanted to do was spit in it, you know, and, and that continues today. And yet it's taken forever for establishment politicians to realize what I think most of the rest of us have realized. That is, those people aren't going to work with you. They have no interest in working with you. That's not what they're about. Um, they're about autocracy. They're about one-party rule. And that's what we've seen, you know, across the board in Europe and elsewhere. And it's disheartening and frightening. But I'm at the same time that I, I, the book is, is fatalistic. I have this kind of fatalistic attitude. Well, it also says at the end, you know, at the end of the book, um, what is that, the line, here's the image of you and your family, you know, DIY, um, sitting down and and making protest posters, you know, um, it is we together who will determine what kind of society our kids grow into by what we each choose to do or not to do a choice in every moment. So make it. Uh, I can't think of a better way, you know, to um, sort of conclude our interview, you know, um, but those yeah, lines. That, that's that's the fundamental right there is, yeah, just recognizing that 
uh, yeah, we're used to seeing civic engagement or activism as this thing that's, uh, again, through another kind of forced binary, either you're politically active or you're not. When the entire point here is simply by being engaged and recognizing that we're, that we have, the old rules don't apply. Yeah. The only way to avoid these mistakes is to remain more engaged, more committed people uh, who are more empathetic and who are able to look through some of the bullshit a lot better. Uh, mm-hmm. That's our only way out. But it is a way through. It is a way out. It just requires following through and not falling back into kind of a, you know, an uneasy rest. Or, or, you know, reflux kind of faith in those institutions that seem yes. to be like the Supreme Court or whatnot, that seem to be decayed or or um, what uh, whatnot. What's the word perverted in some sense? Um, you know, I have to ask, you know, in conversations with John Lewis at the end of his life, what were some of his thoughts about where we were at as, as a country? Did he express those any of those feelings to you? Uh, well, generally speaking, you know, like his his optimism in humanity mm-hmm. uh, and in people power is very genuine, was genuine and, and unshakable. Um, at the same time, particularly in a, I guess, in that last congressional session, you know, from 2017 on, um, it, it's, he would state that in his life, he had never seen that level of dysfunction in terms of getting anything done in the halls of Congress or the the utter refusal to uh, legislate uh, the, the, the types of obstacles that he faced in the halls of Congress doing his job was unprecedented in that in those final years. And he would basically just say, I've never seen it like this in my entire life. Uh, And that's something I would keep in mind, like recognizing his long history of public service and his long history of activism and just seeing that sort of deeply entrenched power uh, from that intimate perspective. Um, So both are true. Like when he said, when he would say, you know, like our, our last public event we did together was in late 2019, and even then, when he would talk about being hopeful, he really meant that. Uh, but he would, ne- you know, he wasn't trying to say that to undercut uh, the level of danger that he was trying to communicate to people, um, but trying to underline again the power that we possess, like the people power uh, that we possess, to be able to actually sway the course of things. Um, and that's the real danger: is the degree to which that may have eroded, even in those those two years that have gone by all it requires for uh you know the failure of democracy is for good men to do nothing yeah yeah and uh uh we're not we're as you said in and so eloquently at the end of um save it for later we 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 don't have that option now and uh, for real you know um Nate, your work has been is an inspiration. It's powerful. It's it's just uh, overwhelming. And um, you know, I, I I've said this to you prior to putting on the record button, but it's it's been uh, it's incredibly moving to me. You know, the work that you've done. And um, and your last book, 
that I've gotten, save it for later, uh, is, is a very important book uh, to me. And um, it's been, as I said, challenging and moving. And, uh, and there are moments within it that just shake me to my core. And uh, particularly, I'm thinking now of that image of your daughter reacting to COVID. Yes. Yeah, that's burned into my mind as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's her fear is, tr and I'm a, I'm a person without children, so uh, I haven't had that that experience. But seeing it in your book uh, just sent something through me. Uh, it's just so powerful, and and uh, I hope the kids are okay. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, there here's the thing, and most parents will tell you this: the kids are handling all this stuff a lot better than the adults. <laughs> and the kids are much better at following the basic rules than the adults. Mm. Um, it, it's been a real wild ride as far as like moving goalposts and, mm. you know, balancing, you know, caution with freedom and dealing with these mutations as they come. But like, they are just an inspiration to me. I like, I cannot fathom them doing any better of a job than they have done. And I tell, I try to tell them that every day. Um, so yeah, I'm just so proud of them and it just gives me so much hope for young people to actually, you know, have better BS meters than <laughs> previous generations did and be able to just like remember all this vividly and yeah. use everything in their wheelhouse to prevent, uh, you know, you know, to, to just make, make a more livable, sustainable world in society. Yeah. There's some great examples of young people uh, out there working. And I'm sure, you know, your children are a reflection of their parents. And uh, uh, I think that's amazing. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a hope for us and that's in the kids, right? So um, yeah. we'll, we'll keep working and, uh, and hope that they will, they will carry the mantle, but uh, not rely on them entirely. They can't do it alone. That's right. You know, Nate, it's this has just been awesome. It's two hours have gone by in a flash and uh, I'm just blown away uh, by our discussion. And um, I thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Jeff. Yeah, this has been really enjoyable. I really appreciate it. So that'll do it for my discussion with Nate Powell. And I have been so honored to have Nate here. And I was so excited about this interview and I really feel you know, I hope you feel as I do that it really lived up to uh, the promise. Uh, Nate and I covered so much, so much territory in this two hours. And again, there's so much more to talk about. And I really thank, I want to thank him once again for taking the time out of his busy, busy day and uh, spending it with us here on the show. Uh, again, be sure to look for Save It For Later, uh, wherever good graphic novels are sold. Uh, save It For Later, run by John Lewis, Andrew Aiden, L. Fury, and Nate Powell is out now also. Run book one. That's the continuation of March. And if you've never read March, again, it's, it's incredible. March books one, two, and three. Don't let that experience get by you. It is, it, it's just an extraordinary, I read all three of them, you know, in one right after another. And they, they are just so moving, so inspirational, so humbling. Uh, and it's a story that we all need to keep in the forefront of our minds, really. The experience of John Lewis, what John Lewis 
and activists during the civil rights era went through and continue to go through in order to bring equal access to the ballot box uh, for all in this country is it's an ongoing struggle as we've seen this week and it's not an easy one so uh, pick it up march it's just it's just incredible just an incredible work i mean man wow okay next time Next time, I'm bringing you the follow-up interview with Dennis Kitchen, as promised. Dennis and I had so much more to talk about, uh, and so he's come back, been gracious enough to come back and speak to me again. And we still didn't cover it all in two hours. There's still so much more to talk to Dennis about. But I think, you know, after four hours, I think I've taken up enough of his time. But we got pretty far (laughs) into his life uh, post-1970 and the story of Kitchen Sink Press. Uh, come back for that. Um, that. That's coming up soon. You know, I hope to have that in a couple weeks for you. Dennis Kitchen here once again. And following that, uh, I'm hoping to have. I've got a, a great list of cartoonists, some of whom I've been whom I've been in contact with and have lined up. I'm going to keep it secret for the moment, but uh, I'm excited about really excited, and uh, I hope to keep bringing you great content here in the new year with some terrific cartoonists. I'm, I'm looking forward to bringing you as much as I can and more, looking forward to more really great conversation. Uh, for me, again, you can always follow me at on Instagram at greenscreencomic. That's one word, greenscreencomic, uh, where you'll find out all about Greenscreen, my latest project. You'll find out about the Have a Banana Research Project, which if you don't know about is really important information to fill out your understanding of comics history, believe me. Uh, and uh, whatever else, whatever there are other silly stuff that I'm working on, as well as Announcements about this show, which will show up there first, because it's basically the only social media I do. So, uh, Green Screen Comic on Instagram, okay? Follow me there. If you're looking for ways to help support this show, again, patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Anything you can see to send our way here at Blockhead is really appreciated. Uh, Every little bit, no matter how small, really helps me bring more content to you. Uh, And if you can't help monetarily, which, hey, I understand that, right? Um, Well, you know, in these days of inflation, look for, uh, there are other ways you can help. Simply by sharing posts, sharing the show with your friends or others you might find interested in the program. uh, Let them know about it because there's like 75 shows here they can listen to now. (laughs) So uh, share it with those folks you think might be interested. Write a review. That's another way of helping. It doesn't have to be a lot, you know, just a couple of sentences that say, hey, this is the greatest podcast I've ever heard in my life. That's going to help a lot. So um, be sure to do that if you can. Until next time, I hope you will be safe and be well. And uh, same for your loved ones. And uh, 2022, I hope it's going well for you. And I look forward to seeing you next time. And for now, as always, thanks for listening.